Well, hello everyone. It is good to be back with you. It's been a little while, so it's lovely to get back and, and worship with you and open up God's Word. Uh, so please turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. We're going to return uh, there this morning. And today I get to talk to you about taxation. That's right. Who wants to talk about that, right? I know. I, I, I mentioned taxation and everybody gets a little mad a little angry. Uh, don't go bringing the IRS into this holy place. Mr. Preacher, please. What are you thinking? We're like the businessman who was on his deathbed, and he called his friend Bill, and he said, Bill, when I die, I want you to promise me that you're going to have me cremated. And Bill said, yeah, Bob, that's no problem. I'll, I'll do that. And what do you want me to do with your ashes? And he said, oh, Bill, just put them in an envelope and send them into the IRS, <laughs> right, with a message that says, dear Uncle Sam, you finally got all of me. <laughs> I like that. You bring the, up the topic of taxation, and, and we go in that direction. But here's the thing. Uh, Matthew 22 talks about taxation. The issue of a poll tax is brought to Jesus, and Jesus turns it toward a more important matter, which is a God tax. A tax that you owe to God, that you must pay up. And so it's, it is a holy subject, worthy of a holy place like this, and so I want to help you understand that today. We're going to talk about this God tax, what it is and, and, and how to pay it, what, what sort of currency you use to pay to God the tax that is due to Him. Uh, so let's look at uh, Matthew 22. We're going to look at verses 15 all the way through to verse 22, and I just want to walk you through what's there. Now, it's important you understand where we're at in Matthew at this point. Of course, you've been in a series in the gospel of Matthew, so, so you know that by now we're in Jesus' last week, and we're in the temple area, which is a holy place, in the temple courts area, and, and Jesus is, has, has turned the tables there, quite literally, you know, really angered a lot of salespeople and business people and small business owners in the temple courts. He turned their tables on them. He's probably angered the, the janitorial staff on cleanup duty that evening as well. And certainly the religious leaders are mad at him. They just can't stand him. He's, he's messing how they do church. He's messing how they've understood a, a life before God. He's... Uh, telling them parables. And, and these stories uh, are, are attracting the crowds, and they are never the good guys in these stories. In fact, they're always the bad guys. So they don't like him, and they want rid of him. So they set a trap for him, and that's where we begin in Matthew 22, verse 15, a trap. Then the Pharisees went, and they plotted how to entangle him, that's Jesus, in his words, or to trap him. And they sent their disciples, that's the Pharisees sent their own disciples, to him along with the Herodians. Now what I need you to understand here is that th this, this is the first of a series of traps in Matthew 22. If you glance down at verse 23, you're going to read something like the same day. The Sadducees, that's another group, came to him, uh, they who say there's no resurrection, and they asked him a question. And the question they ask him is a riddle. It's a theological riddle where there's no real happy answer for them. 
It's really a jibe at Jesus. They're trying to get at him, discredit him. And then if you look down at, at verse 34, you see that the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. I mean, spoiler alert, that's coming on down Matthew 22, but he, he really gets at them as well. The Pharisees come back at him, and one of them, a lawyer, asks him a question to test him. Not a test that they want him to pass, a, a test that they want him to fail. So we're in the first of a series of three clashes with Jesus by the religious leaders and the civic leaders trying to, to, to get rid of him. It's a revolving door of having a go at Jesus. It's a very tense, hostile scene. The word translated there as entangle, and some translations do have trap, it means to, to set an animal trap. It's, it's what you do if you're going hunting. It's what you do if you want rid of a, of a rodent in your home, right, a, a mouse. When, when we lived in Northern Ireland before we returned to Texas, we lived in the countryside, and this, we had this lovely little house surrounded by farms. And so uh, at, at the right time of the year, usually it was around September time, there was a certain crop that they were harvesting, uh, and so the little field mice would decide that it would be best if they hunkered down in my house. And we're very hospitable people, but it was too much for my wife, so it was my, uh, my job to set some traps around the house in, in the little corners where I thought if I was a mouse, I would frequent little dark areas. And so I did. I, I, I set a whole bunch of traps, and, and you've got to understand that my experience up until that point with trap setting was Tom and Jerry cartoons, right? That was, that was the height of it. Big lump of cheese in a trap. That's going to get him. Nothing. Day two, nothing. Then I mentioned it to a friend, and a friend said to me, you know what you need to do? You know chocolate spread Nutella? Would you put on bread and toast, that lovely little chocolate spread? You need to put a little bit of Nutella on that trap. And part of me was thinking, that's a daft idea. But part of me was thinking, I love Nutella. Why would they not love Nutella? It's, it's a great idea. So I tried it anyway. I kid you not. Within 20 minutes, snap, 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 snap. <laughs> I caught a wee family of, of unwelcomed field mice. They just couldn't resist the lure of, of Nutella on toast uh, for supper. And, and that's what's going on here. It's a trap. It's an animal trap. They're trying to snap Jesus publicly. Make sure they, they get him and get rid of him because he's an absolute pest to their lives. He's like an unwanted rodent that snuck into God's people and into God's house, the temple. And he's not welcome and they need to get rid of him. And you stand for truth even today. And, and those who don't want what you have to say will try and trap you. It will try and entangle you. That's an age-old tactic. And, and what's interesting here is that you have a strange alliance that comes together. The, the, the verse 15 there in the beginning of 16 tells us that, that these two groups, the, the Pharisees' disciples and the Herodians, come together. And they really sort of live out that ancient proverb that says that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, because these guys hate each other's guts. The Pharisees and their disciples are, are, are religious separatists. They're sort of the Jewish patriots 
They, they, they hate Roman occupation, and, and Rome occupies that land at that time, and they hate that. The very name for Pharisee really is, comes from the word to set apart. They're separatists. The, the Herodians, they're the opposite side of the continuum or, or the spectrum as it relates to you know, people of importance and, and, and leadership at that time in, in, in Jerusalem and in Israel. These guys are, are political secularists. They have no interest in God, really, but they've done really, really well under Rome. They're kind of Herod's family and, and that crew. These guys have made a lot of money, and so they're Roman sympathizers. They love the Roman occupation because they've thrived under it. This, is, this coming together is like, is like water and, and, and oil deciding to, to, to break the laws of chemistry and blend, come together. It, it's, it's like, just because I think it's quite relevant these days, it's like Trump and Biden getting together and saying, let's run together in the next elections on the same ticket. That's how opposed these people are. You see, the enemy of my enemy, you know, is my friend. And while I hate you, I hate Jesus more. We hate Jesus more. Jesus is not good for any of us here. So let's come together. Let's put aside our hatred and get rid of Jesus. And that, that type of alliance is alive and well and active against Jesus and his people today. See, they're not the ones really puppeteering this. From the very beginning of Matthew in the first few chapters, we've seen that Satan's involved. And he's puppeteering so that he can attack what God is trying to do in the world. And, and that is just another manifestation of it. And today we see that manifested in many areas of life, in many of our culture wars. In fact, the term there that's used in Luke's version of this story, Luke has this version, Mark has this story as well. In Luke's version of this story, Jesus uses a word to describe their craftiness, which is the same word that's used of Satan quite often by the Apostle Paul. Satan's puppeteering this. These political secularists and these religious separatists are coming together to set a trap for Jesus because they want to discredit him. That's what they want to do, discredit Jesus shame him, smear him, disgrace him, generate scandal around him, snap him, let's get rid of him, break his neck. We could do without him. So the trap is set. And look at the second thing that we see in the next uh, few verses. It's a tax trap. It all revolves around taxation. It is a tax trap. Now they use a, a, a sneaky Yet a very, very common tactic uh, to, to set that trap, to set the bait on that trap. Look at, look at the rest of verse 16. It says that these groups came saying, teacher, teacher. The word there is, is sort of like rabbi, you know, professor Jesus. They're pretending to really respect him. Teacher, we know that you're true. You're the real deal. We know you're the real deal. Teacher, we know that you're true and that you teach the way of God truthfully. You're not just the real deal. You're Mr. Bible man, right? You know all the, the good stuff about what God wants, and we see that, and we detect that. So you're amazing, Jesus, is what they're saying. 
And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. You speak your mind without worrying about people-pleasing. You don't worry about, you know, personal polls and, and, and likes on social media, because you're the real deal, Professor Jesus. This, this tactic is, is flattery. That's what this is, flattery. Insincere praise. Praise, but it's really not praise. There's something motivating it. It's fake praise. They're, they're buttering him up so that they can trap him, so that they can trip him up. And, and flattery, you see, is to humans what chocolate spread Nutella is to mice. It baits us. It woos us. It, it, it does it to me. Uh, you know, I haven't been here in a little while, so you're, you're long overdue a little James story. And James is six now, nearly seven. I mean, he's getting up there. And uh, he unintentionally flattered me once to recently to get his way. It was late. Uh, we had been out and we had got home and it was way past his bedtime. So we were up in his room and I thought, right, uh, let's just skip reading and let's just pray and put you to sleep. And of course, his goal was to not skip reading and to stay up as late as he possibly could. So, so he, he said, but dad, you're so good at reading. <laughs> of course, I melted. I'm like wobbly at the knees, yes. And, and that, little, that little feel good that he injected into me took over. I'm like, yeah, thank you very much, James. That's right, I am good at reading. I, you know, I, I'd love to prove to you that I'm still good at reading. Now, I, I snapped out of it. I, I looked at my watch, and I went, I, I, hang on a minute. I've, this is my fourth. You'd think I'd have known this by now. And I, and I snapped out of it quite quickly. And, and he realized I was sort of wrapping things up. And he said, ah, but, but Dad, no, really, you're, you're, you're really a good reader. In fact, you could even do fourth grade reading Probably. <laughs> so he was trying to flatter me even more, but he went too far. At that point, I realized, this guy doesn't think I could get past fourth grade reading. That was fake. That was a trap to get what you wanted. You see, flattery is sneaky. Flattery is a tactic that, that grabs our egos. Like Nutella grabs a mouse's nose. Like a little wriggling worm on a hook traps the eye of a fish. It's a common and effective tactic of, of manipulation. Huge in marketing and sales today. Huge tactic for those worming their way up the corporate ladder in organizations. You see, flattery inserts, it does insert a feel-good sense inside of the one being flattered. It disarms you, and it makes you favorably disposed to the person doing the flattery. Flattery works. It so works that there's lots of ancient stories that, that pass on wisdom to beware of flattery. 
in the Scriptures and elsewhere. In fact, one of, if you're into sort of ancient literature, Aesop's fables, one of his most famous stories in 7th century BC, talks about the crow and the fox and how the crow bird had a big lump of cheese in its beak, and he was perched up on a branch, and the fox was hungry, but he couldn't get up the tree. So he said to the crow, you're the most beautiful bird I have ever seen. I wonder if your singing matches your good looks. Of course, the crow couldn't resist it. He opened his beak to prove that he could sing as good as he looked, and he dropped the cheese, and the fox went off with the cheese. Flattery works. Flattery gets you what you want. But the thing is, flattery is wrong. Flattery is evil. Flattery is disarming because it's deceptive. I I read about the teacher who, who said to the student, where's your homework? Why didn't you turn it in? And the student said, well, I lost it fighting this kid that said you weren't the best teacher in school. (laughs) Instantly. Disarmed. What would I do with this kid who didn't turn in their homework? Because I really, really like him. And he's fighting my battles. We have a word for that in Ireland and a monument to it. We call it Blarney. Blarney Stone, Blarney Castle. You know what it's been said of what Blarney is? Blarney is flattery that is sweetened by humorous wit. It's still deceptive. It's just we enjoy it, and it disarms us. Now, don't get me wrong. There's, there's, there's a place for encouragement and compliments and helping lift somebody and praising somebody if it's true, not if it's motivated by another agenda that you want to accomplish. That is just blarney. So here we have a trap that's set, and the, the trap is set through the tactic of flattery. Look at verse 17. Tell us then, tell us then, what do you think, Jesus, Professor Jesus? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? There's the trap. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, that's going to grab not just Jesus' attention, but everybody who's around Jesus. What is Jesus' position on taxation? That's a very culturally engaging topic that they bring before him. In fact, the tax that they're referring to here, we believe to be the poll tax, a head tax, because later on, Jesus asks for a denarius, and that's the coin that would have been used to pay for that tax. So we believe that it's, it's the poll tax that they're approaching Jesus to give us his opinion. Or should we pay the poll tax? Back then, everybody, unless you were really, really young or really, really old, everybody had to pay the poll tax to the Romans. You see, it was, it was an expression of your submission to the Romans. It was a way of Rome knowing who really is loyal to us. Those who don't pay up, we've got to go after them. But those who do pay up, we don't need to worry about them because they've subjected themselves, they're submissive to our rule in this land. It's, it's, it's essentially a recognition that you're owned by Caesar, their, their ruler, their king, and that you benefit from life under his rule. It's, it's a way of saying, thank you, Caesar, we're subject to you. And it's a very clever little trap because it's framed as a yes or no. 
You see, if Jesus says, no, don't pay that tax, then those little sneaky rascals, the Herodians, remember the, the, the secularists, they're going to tattletale to the Romans. We have an insurrectionist here. You should step in and get rid of him. But you say, if Jesus says, yes, you should pay that tax, then you've got these religious nuts, the, 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 the Pharisees, who are going to whip up the crowd into a frenzy. And they're going to go after Jesus as being a collaborator with Rome. How could he be your Messiah if he's going to lead you to submission to Rome? You see, whatever which way you cut this, Jesus is not going to come out of it well. He's going to fail. That's why this alliance came together. If he says yes, you get him. If he says no, we get him. Ultimately, we get him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If he sides with the Herodians, he's a traitor. If he sides with the Pharisees, he's a stirrer. No matter what, he's deserving of death. It's snap or snap. But boy, are they in for a surprise. Look at verse 18. But Jesus aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? I mean, he sees the, the evil motivation that's been sweetened through flattery just to bait Jesus. He sees past it. And he calls them out publicly as fakes, which is a public insult. And he doesn't answer them according to the, how they have framed the question. He actually takes the higher ground and becomes an authority over them. And he makes them essentially do what he says. He turns this trap, essentially, toward a greater truth that all of them must understand and all of us must understand as well. Verse 19, here he goes after it. Show me the coin for the tax. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, that taxes coin. Which, even just visually, he's making a point. Who's got one of those coins in their pocket? Jesus doesn't. But if you have some of those coins in your pocket, you're already participating in the Roman occupation. You're already benefiting from life under the rule of Rome, so you're already submissive to them, even though you're pretending that you're not. So who's got a coin? And you could probably see them all sort of, I don't want to put my hands in my pocket and expose myself alongside of my buddies that I participate in this. But then he says, verse 20, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, well, it's Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore, render or pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This is a very well-known little teaching of Jesus, and let me explain to you what's going on there. The coin that they're referring to in that area, that, in that era, that, that denarius coin was branded with an image, a portrait. Uh, the word used there is the word icon, uh, image, portrait. And just like, like our coins today, your coins have some presidents branded on the back of them with some words. The coins where I come from have Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's portrait on the coins. So, so they would have been very familiar with that. And so when they, when, they, when they present the coin and Jesus says, whose image is that? They would have seen the face of the Caesar at the time, which was a guy called Tiberius Caesar. 
And there would have been some words alongside of that that, that really irritated a good Jew because it would have said, Tiberius Caesar, son of God. Tiberius Caesar, not only son of God, but high priest of the gods. So this is obviously very, very inflammatory to them, but, but the point that Jesus is making is that the branding, the image, the, the, the minting on the coin speaks of ownership. Who owns the coin? And it speaks, number two, of authority. Who's authority over those who use the coins? And that's the general principle, really, that Jesus is playing off of here. That branding discloses ownership and submission. That's the principle here. Branding discloses ownership and submission. If the guy's picture and name is on it, then the coin is his. So give it back to him, and to not give it back to him is to steal from him. Now, we understand that principle ourselves, not just because of coins, but because we send our kids to school. And when we send our kids to school, we send them in dressed, of course, but they take off sweaters. And they all lose water bottles and lunchboxes. And they all bought those sweaters and lunchboxes and water bottles in the same store just a few months ago, so they all look the same. So what we have to do is put our names, right? We brand those items in a way that says, we own that. That's ours. So that when they all migrate to the lost and found at school, we can show up and say, oh, that's mine. And that's mine. Because look, our name is on it. We, we understand that principle. That, that's a true principle then. It's a true principle now. Give the guy his money. It's his face that's on the coin. It's his image. It's his icon. So give it back to him. Now, I don't want to get into this. We don't have too much time, but, but it does emerge here as a smaller teaching, albeit important, that is developed elsewhere in the Scriptures. It's not just primary here. Jesus takes it in a different direction. But, but I do need to mention it here because the, Jesus is telling us to pay up what we owe Uncle Sam. He is saying that. He's telling them that, and I think the reasons are are many. One of them is that God invented taxation. Read the Old Testament. God sets up a society of people under him and under his rule, and he gives them a law, and he gives them a tax system so that the society benefits. Now, they're not going to get, I don't know, their their waste or their bins collected every week and and roads like ours built and maybe a rec center. They're not going to get any of that, But, but they're going to get stuff that benefits the society. So God invented taxation, number two. God invented human government. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans and in 1 Timothy. The Apostle Peter picks up on this in in, in 1 Peter 2. That we're to be submissive to to the, the, the government that has been instituted or ordained by God above us. Now, nobody likes to hear that that often, but it's true. In fact, Peter goes so far as to say that you should submit to the government as unto the Lord. And they're talking about really wicked governments. Really wicked people that that Paul and Peter are saying, you know what, you're a Christian. You take it on the chin and you submit to the government. And you understand that in submission to the government, you're bowing the knee to, to, to the Lord. And he can handle their abuse and their overreach and their corruption. You leave that with him. 
course, uh, number three, God very clearly in the Scriptures has instituted several spheres of life that we all must live under. Number one, family. Number two, church. Number three, human government. And God gives us in the Scriptures lots of guidelines and instructions as to how we are to function inside of those spheres of life. And all of them drip with submit, submit, submit. We don't like to hear that. So Jesus is telling them to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, to, 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 to give the guy his money back, to, to pay taxes that are due to the government that is over you. He is saying that. Now, again, I'm not going to get into this, but there's no doubt that there are times when we uh, disobey appropriately, right? If, if, if they do or ask us to do what displeases God, then he's the higher authority as we submit to him. But, but Jesus isn't getting into that, so I'm not going to get into that either. My point is that we can't bypass that just because we don't like it. We do need to pay our taxes, is what Jesus is saying here. But verse 21, he takes it where he wants to take it, which is, Caesar, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. There's a greater truth that Jesus is after here for you, for me. He's actually playing off that word, image. And that theme in the Scriptures that stretches all the way back to Genesis 1, 27, where it says that God created mankind in His own image, icon. In the image, icon of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. What Jesus is saying is God's image is branded on your life. And so give to God what is due to God, which is you. You. Just like Caesar lays a legitimate claim on that coin as tax, God's got a legitimate claim on your life as tax. You are God's tax. All of you. Every bit of you. Caesar, government gets something if you're a good citizen, but God gets everything if you're a good human, certainly if you're a good Christian. It's a very simple truth that Jesus is nailing home here. Caesar gets some, but God gets all, 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 all. And that's coming back to you in a, in a few verses down Matthew 22. It's a genius move by Jesus. Let's stop talking about what Caesar gets. What about what God gets? Because you're religious leaders, right? Verse 22 says that when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him, and they went away. It's, it's kind of like they scurry on out of there. Whoops. Now, they exit, and the next group comes in to take Jesus on. Our time is gone. Let me close by sending you into this week with that greater teaching, that greater truth in this passage for you. God, God wants you to, to, to take it into your week so that, so that you align your life back to him uh, let me give you a little illustration by way of, of making this point. Uh, there was a guy in the 5th century called Augustine. And Augustine, you may not have heard of him, uh, but Augustine is one of those remarkable figures in the history of the church. I mean, he's up there outside of the Scriptures with a handful of top guys that God used to help us understand His Word. In fact, they say that there's no... There's no room of theology that we could ever enter that Augustine hasn't been 
well in and seated long before you ever arrived. I mean, this, this guy is significant. Look what he says concerning this teaching. He says this. He says it better than I ever could, which is why I'm bringing it to you. He says, we are God's money. We're God's money. But we're like coins that have wandered away from the treasury. What was once branded upon us has been worn down by our wandering. Referring to God, he says, the one who restamps his image upon us is the one who first formed us. He himself seeks his own coins as Caesar sought his coins. To Caesar, his coins. But to God, your very self. What Augustine is saying there, and this is the teaching I want to leave you with, is this, that you are God's coins for God. You're God's coins for God. He's right. All, all, that, you, all that is you is to be spent on God. You are the tax owed to God, so pay up. Now, Satan will try and woo you through the world to think that the money in, in your account is yours for you, that, that, that your gifts and your talents are yours for you, that your home and your time and the years that you have left and your weekends and your health are all yours for you. Satan will try and tell you, teach you, convince you of that. And we're doing a really fine job of believing that. But none of that's true according to Jesus. That's not true according to the Scriptures. Those who are branded by God or owned by God are subject to God and are to spend their lives for God because God's owed a tax and that's you. The money in your account is God's entrusted to you for God. The gifts and talents that you have are God's entrusted to you for God's use. The, the home, your time, your weekends, your health, whatever years you have left are entrusted to you by God for God. That's what the Christian scriptures teach. You're steward of your life for God. You're God's coins to be spent on God. That's a great thing, to spend all of your life on Jesus Christ. Think about that the next time you are paying a little bill at the restaurant and you look at the tax amount and you go, oh, I gotta figure out how much I owe in tip and you usually kind of double that or you do something with that tax. When you see that thing, oh, hang on a minute, there's a tax I owe God today because I'm God's coin to be spent on God so that when the day comes when you're summoned into his presence, be it as ashes or not, you can truly say to him, not the IRS, and not your work, and not your bank account, that you give him your all, dear Lord. You got all of me. Every single bit of me was spent on you. Do that this week. What a wonderful way to spend your week. Our time is gone. Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word. We thank you for what it reveals to us concerning our Lord Jesus Christ and what he wants from us, what he expects from us, and how he wants us to live our lives. Lord, we pray that as we enter our week, that you would help us be 
in remembrance of this, that you would help us make sure that, that we live in a society that is very clearly, obviously trying to spend ourselves on you. The Lord Jesus Christ deserves that, which he calls for in his followers. Help us do that this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.